I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to the Beyond COVID podcast from Rain Network. In this podcast series, David Lawrence, co-founder of RAIN, speaks with Dr. Fred Southwick, an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida's College of Medicine, and Dr. Bill Lang, an expert in public health responses to biological incidents about the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's listen in on this week's conversation. Fred and Bill, uh, once again, thank you. Happy New Year and uh, appreciate your coming on. Um, There's actually a, a fair amount to talk about. Uh, both in terms of the epidemiology of uh, what's happening out there, uh, not just with COVID, but respiratory issues. And uh, Fred, uh, maybe you'll you know, basically drill down and uh, talk about the, the new variant uh, of this and how people should be thinking about this and, of course, what we should be doing. But, Bill, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. Uh, what I what I'll talk about a little bit is the the epidemiology of it, and the reason I say that is because, you know, all over the news now is that COVID's coming back with a vengeance. So let me describe what that means. Um, what we're seeing is that COVID death rates are up again, and as we know, unfortunately, death rates is one of the best ways to track it. Best ways to track uh, COVID, but. We're up to about 1,400 deaths a week, which sounds awful, but the typical flu deaths per week are somewhere on the order of 1,000 to 1,200. So we're not really that much higher than typical flu deaths. What this is doing is the people dying are the people who are um, typically at extremes of life, um, typically older, um, and that's where we're getting more deaths. This is additive to the typical flu deaths, so so it's not like we want to ignore this. The other thing we are seeing is that, again, looking at the wastewater uh, rates of concentration of uh, viral loads in the wastewater, and those also are up again. Now, all that being said, the ER visits for COVID are down about half of what they were a year ago at this time and deaths are down from last year. So what that's telling us is that yes, COVID is up. The number of infections with COVID are back up again. We would expect that after the holidays, but they are not up at extreme levels. And very importantly, this COVID is behaving in terms of what it does to people, something similar to the flu. It's not this terrifying disease that it was four years ago. So it's, it, it has changed and our immunity as a human population has changed. So don't think of this as being the same as what we were dealing with two years ago. It's up, but if, you, if you're in an at-risk group, get vaccinated. Yes, and that's even me saying, saying think about getting vaccinated again. If you're not in an at-risk group, I'm not, I'm not as compelled to push people for vaccination, uh, but it, it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, Bill, that's a really excellent summary, and I agree with uh, all of your statements. Uh, the, the JN1 was of great concern 
uh, about a month or two months ago when it was identified because the number of mutations in this particular variant were almost as many as Delta versus Omicron. Now, the Jan 1 is in the Omicron family, but it has roughly 30 uh, amino acid differences. And what that means is that the routine immunity may not be as effective. In fact, it isn't as effective and as effective. And that's why we're seeing this rise in symptomatic cases. Now, the good news is it's still in the Omicron family and seems to be of lower virulence or less severe than Delta or the earlier variants and in the original uh, virus. So, uh, but, and the other good news is the uh, booster that's available now is protective, significant, shows significant protection against JN1. Therefore, I recommend anyone who has uh, underlying serious disease that would make them uh, uh, develop more severe complication from the virus, anyone over the age of 65 uh, should get the booster. Uh, the younger people that are healthy, uh, that's a little more of a gray zone. I personally favor them getting it too, but uh, Bill and I differ on that one opinion, and that's fine. But you know what, uh, what else is important is that we are not seeing any significant drop-off in the effectiveness of the antivirals, Paxlovid. But what we are seeing is that the at-risk population basically the, the, the population that Fred just outlined, over 65, or those with significant uh, underlying medical issues, they're not getting Paxlovid. The utilization of Paxlovid has dropped off significantly from a year ago. And I think it's people have become a little bit complacent. And I think, I, I think it's reasonable to be a little complacent if you're in a younger group. Yes, there are still young people who have severe illness or die of COVID, uh, but not that many. But the people in the older group are also becoming complacent. They'll say, oh, I had COVID a year ago. I'm not worried about it. It didn't, I didn't get real sick last time. But as Fred noted, this JN1 is different. In most people, JN1 is going to be just another you know, viral illness. But it's different enough and yet has enough similarities to the original COVID viruses that it can, it can cause bad disease. So if you get COVID and you're in an at-risk group, get Paxlovid right away, assuming you don't have a contraindication, but you should be thinking about it. Bill, I, I strongly agree with that. And uh, one of the keys is you only have, there's a window of five days where it's really effective. So the, uh, from the onset of symptoms, you have five days. So uh, those that are at risk should not wait around to see if they're going to get better. But because by the time they get worse, it, the Paxlovid will not be very effective. But it's been shown to reduce hospitalizations and really all strains by 85 to 90 percent. So it really is a very effective drug. And the side effects have not been uh, very significant. Uh, so I, I, strong, I also strongly recommend that those at risk uh, get Paxlovid within the first two to several days of symptoms. Yeah, just a, a couple of quick notes on Pax, Paxlovid. I've uh, written probably myself getting now close to 200 prescriptions. I've had probably five five to 10 patients that may have had rebound from it. That seems to be a little bit below uh, what the 
what the reported number is. The reported number is somewhere between uh, 10 and 20 percent. And but I my, most of my patients I follow very closely, so I feel very comfortable with my numbers. Um, and then also in terms of side effect, almost universally report the bad taste in your mouth. But that's about it. A little bit of diarrhea, um, but it, it is a very, very well-tolerated uh, medication. One other point, going back to vaccines for a minute, um, we've reported this in the past, but there's some more data coming out that the vaccine is associated with a lower incidence of long COVID. Now, the one caveat to that is that the overall reporting rate for long COVID is going down fairly significantly. It, it speaks to maybe that there was some degree of a, um, of a psychological component to some some, not all, some cases of long COVID and that people were just afraid. And that's, that's normal. You're afraid of the unknown and any, any symptom is interpreted as being part of a uh, reaction to, to COVID. And that's backed off a bit. But even controlling for that, the data looks pretty good that people who are fully vaccinated um, have a lower incidence of long COVID. I, I'm not fooling myself. We're not going to convince anybody at this point who hasn't had the vaccination to go get vaccinated. But still, it's, it, does, it has been shown to help reduce the incidence of long COVID. So uh, let me jump in uh, with a question that's coming from a variety of clients in our network, which is uh, people are just not testing the way they were. And they may, they may in fact have COVID and, and the symptoms, but because of the vaccines, you know, these are tolerable rates. Um, what's your advice about, you know, testing when you have certain symptoms? And obviously there's a matter of your you know, being contagious to others. There's also a matter of, you know, getting Paxlovid, you know, at an early stage, uh, talking to your physician, et cetera. Thoughts on that issue? So from, in my, in my practice, anybody who is at, is either at risk or is routinely around somebody at risk, I, re I recommend to them that if they get symptoms that could be consistent with COVID. And at this point, you know, symptoms that could be consistent with COVID are you know, fever, sore throat, body aches and pains. It's kind of the typical viral syndrome symptoms. You can't, it's very hard to uh, separate it out. But if you do get those symptoms and you are at risk or routinely expect to be exposed, I, I strongly urge those people to get, um, to get tested so, so they don't get sick themselves or transmit it to someone who, who may be ill. When you get below that, um, and you get younger people you know, who are not in, you know, not around grandparents, kind of thing, um, I, I, I'm not as push. I don't push as hard on getting tested every time you think you may be COVID, may have COVID. You're going to be get. You're going to be testing yourself, you know, all the time because people's immunity has been down a bit um, because of having been masked and semi isolating over the past few years. So you're going to People are getting colds, just general colds, at a higher rate than they would have in previous years. Um, but I still think that if there's any reason why you think you might be at risk to yourself or others, you should get tested so that you can get treated, so that you can mask uh, or avoid being around uh, people who may be at risk. Yeah, uh, David, I completely agree. Uh, 
Uh, one group that's really a difficult problem are college students or that are in crowded environments uh, repeatedly. And I, the problem there, you would, they would be, they get colds all the time. They need uh, antigen testing so frequently and what the benefit is, is, is really unclear. But if they're going to a family outing where they're elderly people or they're exposed to individuals that are immune compromised, I think in that situation, then they should test themselves. Okay. You may hear it in my voice. Um, I had, uh, I was visited over the New Year's by my two young grandchildren, uh, four and six. And I like to say they're not signatories to the Geneva Convention on uh, Biological Warfare. And, uh, <laughs> and sure enough, you know, the day after they arrived, uh, both with the symptoms and the older one had, you know, 101, 102 fever. When it didn't go away after two days, I brought them to uh, the pediatricians. And uh, I was hoping it was an ear infection, you know, quick antibiotic. Uh, but uh, she looks at him and uh, asks him whether her ears hurt at all and says no. And she quickly turns to me. She says, it's either COVID or influenza B. And uh, I'm going to test for both. And what that highlighted to me, uh, the symptoms, very, very similar. You know, we went through what he had been experiencing. And uh, what I'm hearing as a takeaway from you guys is that uh, to the extent that you are going to be in contact with um, at-risk individuals, uh, whether family or broader, uh, as a matter of, I'll call it civic responsibility, you should test to see whether you have it. And of course, what's complicating that uh, I don't believe the government is dispensing the test kits anymore uh, the way they were, or the insurance companies for that no, matter. No, I believe that's, I believe they are. I mean, unless this has changed in the last few weeks, you can request a test kit again. You can I'll, still request, okay, because our local pharmacies here are no longer giving them out, uh, just for what that may be worth uh, uh, here in uh, the New York City area. Or at least they're not doing it uh, in a willful way. Maybe you have to see the manager, Bill. But uh, yeah, they looked at me as though I was uh, asking for something quite antiquated. But uh, in any event, uh, something came out today. Uh, apparently, there was a hope that uh, taking Paxlovid might be helpful in treating long-term COVID. However, that ultimately gets defined. Uh, but apparently, um, at least initial studies indicate that it is not. Do you have any thoughts about Further thoughts, I know we've discussed long-term COVID and the, um, uh, the efforts to actually understand it, define it, et cetera. But any thoughts uh, how people should be thinking about the long-term effects of COVID? So I think it's, I don't have any new thoughts on the long-term effects of COVID. I kind of outlined a little bit, but I think we're seeing less incidents of new cases of long COVID. Um, I think that's a combination of people being you know, less less terrified of COVID. Um, and I think it's also because immunity, almost everybody in the community is now at least to some degree immune from COVID, either from vaccination or from having had COVID. And that includes people who did not clinically know they had COVID. Almost everybody has been exposed. So I think that that even having a, a lower degree of immunity is going to significantly decrease the rate of long COVID. Um, so it's I don't it's not as 
big a concern in the community as it was a year, 18 months ago. Um, and I did confirm that you can get COVID tests, uh, free COVID tests, if you go to uh, www.covidtests.gov. Oh, shoot, I'm not sure what, uh, covidtest.gov. Um, you can get up to four free COVID tests sent to you by the U.S. Postal Service. Um, uh, Bill, I don't have anything to add to what you said. The, the problem remains the exact pathogenesis or mechanism by which people get long COVID is very poorly understood. We know this, these symptoms, but we really don't know the exact cause. And the suggestion is that it's a, a hyperimmune response. And uh, we do know that certain individuals have more uh, powerful immune reactions to all antigens. And it's likely that there is probably a genetic component to long COVID. So whether Paxlovid is going to be, it'd be very hard for Paxlovid to show a benefit. As Bill said, most people are already immune, so the, the concentration of virus in their body will tend to be lower. And then Paxlovid, uh, you'll shorten the, the viral uh, phase by a couple of days. Uh, so it's hard to expect, I wouldn't expect Paxlovid, uh, given the, uh, already the herd immunity, to be a benefit. Fred, I know you've been dealing with some headline issues in Florida. Maybe um, be worth spending a few minutes for the audience on um, what's going out um, in the media world. And again, um, among the lessons we've learned during the pandemic um, is that uh, there's no shortage of information, just a shortage of um, information that people can rely upon and trust. But um, maybe you can share with the audience uh, sort of the headline issues in Florida. Uh, yes, uh, two days ago, our Surgeon General, uh, uh, Dr. Latipo, uh, published uh, a position saying that he did not recommend the mRNA uh, COVID-19 vaccines for anyone in Florida. And this was based on a finding that there are minor amounts of DNA contamination in the mRNA virus of uh, viral vaccines. However, he, the, he did not put this into context. Uh, his statement was, well, this DNA could be incorporated into the host DNA and therefore patients would be at risk for developing uh, cancers. However, he neglected to point out that there's been tremendous amount of research in this very area because we are giving DNA to people for gene therapy for those that have defective proteins to actually generate the deficient proteins. And so this has been a great concern for years. It turns out there's uh, virtually uh, no risk of that because our bodies have an agent called DNAase. And DNAase it, it actually breaks down uh, loose uh, DNA and, and destroys it. So this, this is, uh, he's created a straw horse uh, and that again, uh, created, uh, it's really sharing disinformation in my view and, uh, and, and further harming the reputation of this particular vaccine. Uh, as I pointed out, I was in a press conference about this. Uh, the developers of the mRNA vaccine received the Nobel Prize 
because scientists throughout the world recognize what a major and exciting advance this is. And so for someone who with a limited uh, research and scientific background to question the vaccine in this way is, is really shocking and disappointing. And uh, we would hope that uh, we can stop this kind of communication in the future uh, because it's, again, undermining the CDC, undermining the FDA, and all of the experts, the hundreds and hundreds of vaccine experts who have come down in favor of this vaccine. Fred, I think you've uh, commented in the past, maybe it's worth reiterating, how closely followed this vaccine is uh, by uh, leading experts around the world. Um, maybe you can elaborate on that uh, a bit for the audience. Yeah, well, because of the uh, political, uh, for reasons that are still like, complicated, uh, the vaccine has become a political issue when uh, science should not be political. Science, as we mentioned before, is about seeking the truth using the scientific method. And that is a very neutral approach uh, where you test your hypothesis. If the data is consistent with it, you keep the hypothesis. If the data is inconsistent, then you move on to another uh, hypothesis. This is about seeking the truth. And hundreds of experts in the vaccine field, uh, hundreds of experts in uh, gene therapy and, and use of mRNA and DNA, all are, have strongly supported this vaccine. And so the only people that have been criticizing it uh, tend to be uh, on the fringe of science and they do not have the scientific uh, evidence to support uh, their hypotheses. What they often do is they find a flawed study and unfortunately scientists aren't perfect. They find one study in, a, in not very good journals where the scientific method was not rigorous and where they come out with a contrary result. And that does happen in science, but the overwhelming body of evidence supports the safety and effectiveness of this vaccine, supported by a Nobel Prize. And as people who have been listening to this series over this whole period know, I've been a little bit I've been I not I don't want to say skeptical of the vaccine, but I've been a little bit more questioning of the vaccine um, throughout the whole period. However, on this one, I agree completely with Fred that there is no good evidence that finding a very small degree of DNA uh, contamination is going to have any effect on this vaccine. This vaccine, I've taken it myself. I've ensured my family takes the vaccine. Um, I believe the vaccine has has done amazing things for uh, putting a lid on this um, this epidemic. Um, I think that, that people should not be afraid of this vaccine. Once you've been fully vaccinated, I don't know how many times you need to get additional vaccines. We can disagree on that a little bit, but I think that's a, this, is a, this is a safe, well-studied and effective vaccine. And I'd like to remind um, the audience what Bill, you and Fred have reiterated the purpose of this is not, um, and, and the efficacy of these vaccines should not be measured about in terms of whether people get COVID, but the impact on them if they do. Um, and this is about hospital, 
reducing hospitalizations and obviously deaths. And Fred, as you mentioned again today, you know, different populations are at different degrees of risk. And Bill's advice to his patients uh, correlates with, you know, who the patients are, their age, medical history, uh, the I'm sure the interactions and demographics of uh, of where they live and how they interact with family members. Uh, I wanted to, I'm going to go back because um, Bill, you have to endure me on this testing issue as as a lawyer and not as a doctor. Uh, but I, I did a little bit of uh, uh, additional research because we had so many questions from clients who claimed that uh, you know these test kits were not were no longer readily available. They wanted to roll them out uh, more broadly. Apparently, the government dis did disband the distribution, uh, reinstituted it uh, in October of uh, 2023. But it appears that uh, you only get four per, per household from the government. There are obviously sites that will test for you. But it does not look as though uh, as many are being dispense free of charge through various government uh, agencies. So uh, what we'll do for the audience is we'll update this to get a complete view uh, of this. And you're right, you know, the USPS, uh, United States Postal Service, does distribute it, but basically it's four per household. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but during flu season, uh, we tend to test a lot. Um, and if you have, you know, uh, even adult children, grandchildren and things like that, uh, four tests uh, only go so far. Um, just to, Let me make, if I can make yeah, one please. more comment on testing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this has actually come up clinically in the last couple of weeks. People say to me, well, if I should test for COVID, shouldn't I be testing for flu also? Because those are the two, those are the two right. viral illnesses that you can readily test for and treat for. And you know, it's, it's hard to say, if, yes, you should test for COVID and not test for flu. Um, flu test, there is no home flu test, however. If you want to get a flu test, you've got to go to your doctor or go to a clinic and, um, and get tested. We think that may change next year. This has been a longstanding issue. Um, whether it's doctors just trying to lobby to drive people to go to the clinics, um, that's me being a little bit cynical. Uh, but I think what we've proven is that people can effectively and efficaciously uh, do testing themselves and then contact appropriate uh, prescribers to get treatment when when needed. So for this year, if you think you've got something, it's not a bad idea to go into your you know, local care provider and get tested for both flu and COVID um, and then treat if, if one of those is positive. In the closing uh, few minutes that we have, Bill, Fred, uh, looking out into the future, what should people be looking for, looking at, um, both in terms of protecting themselves, their organizations, and also just in terms of uh, reliable sources of information. Well, I think the, the, the sources of information are the same as they have been. Uh, the rigorous scientific journals, Science, Nature, New England Journal, JAMA uh, among them, are all good resources, as is the CDC website it is very effective. Uh, and the FDA, and so, and also uh, renowned universities, uh, medical centers, uh, there the information is accurate as well. 
And uh, you want to stick with where the true expertise is and where the truth always rules. Uh, I think that's very important. Uh, avoid sources uh, where there is some question about the expertise and background of the individuals. Um, and as far as what's going to happen in the future, I think we're probably, because of the holidays and people gathering, and Bill can discuss this in more detail, um, we've, we're probably in the peak uh, because of the heavy exposure and large numbers of large uh, gatherings. And now from here on in, uh, there won't be any large gatherings and we will move into spring and summer when people will be outside. So I think this should be the peak for the year unless there's some new variant that comes along that is even more, I can't imagine there's going to be one more infectious than the JN1, but it's always possible. But unless there's some un very unusual variant. So Fred, we are in fact at the, the current peak. Um, we're right at about the same level that we were in 2019, uh, right before we recognized that COVID was going to take off. Interestingly, the overarching um, influenza-like illness rate dropped, but it, it dropped in, because people started staying home. Uh, but we are, we are at a peak. I think we probably will see, we may go up a little bit more, but we're we're probably at a fairly high peak right now. Um, that's one thing that people should keep in mind, though, is that that this is flu season. Um, and as we see, even though people aren't afraid of, as afraid of COVID, that people should be thinking about businesses should be thinking about taking the reasonable measures that we took even before 2019 when we had a high rate of flu-like illness. You know, tell your uh, housekeeping staffs to wipe down the high-touch surfaces again. Um, if someone does have illness, uh, any kind of respiratory illness, stay home. Don't, don't come into work and infect everybody else. Um, those simple things that, that can be done, um, increasing the air turnover rate so that you have less airborne um, infectious particles can be very helpful. So many of the things that we learned over COVID, we shouldn't stop applying them just because COVID is gone. Our COVID is not as scary as it was, not that it's gone. Um, we still need to maintain vigilance against, uh, against res especially respiratory infectious disease. And going back to uh, uh, David's previous question, I think in addition to monitoring those sources, I think it's important that large organizations, and I, this is something I've said before, I think it's very important that large organizations have a source of good medical advice. You know, we those all those sources that are out there, we're not going to expect the the the, the safety and security managers at large companies to go and be reading those things. They need that just like they're going to have a safety advisor or security advisor or legal advisor. I think that it's important to have a health advisor who can tell them what's going on and help interpret how that applies to their organization. So great advice. Uh, as I look out, if I can just add one other thing, obviously you've uh, focused on the medical. Uh, it's going to be interesting uh, to see what emerges from hearings that are now scheduled uh, involving Dr. Fauci um, and the 
connection with the Wuhan lab and other things. Uh, so Fred, uh, I expect no shortage of interesting information and commentary and conspiracy theories and other things to come out. We'll, you know, hopefully it will be a search, you know, for the truth, but it's in Washington, so I have no doubt it'll be highly political. And um, I'm sure we'll have some questions for you guys uh, the next time out, but, you know, we'll avoid the political hornet's nest. But it is interesting to me that uh, this issue still has legs and, um, you know, we have a congressional hearing coming up. So in any event, uh, looking at that as well. Fred, in the meantime, hopefully the headlines will be better in Florida for you. Thank you, David. Have a All right. Weekend. And and we're going to do a podcast with uh, Fred's book in 2024 very shortly, uh, uh, Playing with Bees, which is uh, done very, very well and is an overarching um, series of lessons about how to improve the healthcare system in the United States. So uh, congratulations on the book. Right. And Thank Bill, you, I'm, I, I've, I've heard from uh, independently from a number of organizations where you've continued to be of great help. Uh, a very calm and uh, uh, informed hand has been uh, terrifically helpful to them. So I look forward to reconvening maybe in a few weeks. So thank you guys. Thank you, David. Thank you. This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series, comprised of both virtual and real-world events, offering unique practical perspectives from Rain's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. Thank you for listening.